0: storyteller and we're not going to have any small talk this morning so we're going to jump right into the book 1984 by George Orwell. All right book two chapter seven. Winston had woken up with his eyes full of tears. Julia rolled sleepily around against him murmuring something that might have been What's the matter? I dreamt, he began, stopped short. It was too complex to be put into words. There was the dream itself, and there was the memory connected with it that had swum into his mind in the few seconds after waking. He lay back with his eyes shut, still sodden in the atmosphere of the dream. It was vast, luminous dream that which his whole life seemed to stretch out before him like a landscape on a summer afternoon, after rain. It had all accord inside the glass paperweight. The surface of the glass was the dome of the blue sky. Inside the dome, everything was flooded with clear, soft light, in which one could see indeterminable distances. The dream had also been comprehended by, indeed, in a sense that it consisted in a gesture of an arm made by his mother, and made again thirty years later by a Jewish woman he had seen on the news film. Trying to shelter the small boy from bullets before the helicopters blew them both to pieces. Did you know he said that until this moment, I believe I had murdered my mother. Why did you murder her? Said Julia, almost asleep. I didn't. Not physically. In the dream, he had remembered his last glimpse of his mother, and a few moments of a walking, the cl- awakening. The cluster of small events surrounding it had all come back it was a memory that he had deliberately must have deliberately pushed back out of his consciousness over many years he was not certain of the date it could not been he could not have been any less than 10 years old possibly 12 when it happened his father had disappeared some time earlier how much earlier he could not remember he remembered better the rackety, uneasy circumstances of the time, and the periodical panics about the air raids, and the sheltering in the tubes at stations, and the piles of rubble everywhere, the unintelligible proclamations posted on street corners, the gangs of youths in shirts all the same color, the enormous Cues outside of bakeries, the intermittent machine gun fire in the distance, and above all, the fact that he was never—there was never enough to eat. He remembered long afternoons spent with the other boys, scrounging around dustbins and rubbish heaps, picking out ribs of cabbage leaves, potato peelings. Sometimes even scraps of stale bread crusts, from which they had been carefully scraped away from the cinders, and also in waiting for the passing of trucks which travelled over a certain route and were known to carry cattle feed in which, when they jolted over the black patch the bad patches in the road, sometimes split in a few fragments of oil cake. When his father disappeared, his mother did not show any surprise, violent or grief, but a sudden change came over her. She seemed to have been become completely spiritless. It was evident even to Winston that she was waiting for something that she knew must happen. She did everything that needed that was needed. She cooked, washed, mended, made the bed, swept the floor, dusted the mantelpiece very slowly and with a lack, and a curious lack of superfluous motion, like an artist laying lay figure moving in his own accord, her large, shapely body seemed to relapse naturally into stillness. For hours at a time, she would almost sit, immobile on the bed, nursing his young sister. A tiny, ailing, very silent child, two or three, with a face made of simian by thinness. On the very occasion, he would take Winston into her arms and press him against her for a long time without saying anything. He was aware in spite of his youthfulness and selfishness, that this was somehow connected with the never-mentioned thing that was about to happen. He remembered the room where they lived, a dark, close-smelling room that seemed to be half-filled by a bed and a white counterpane. There was a glass ring in the fender, and a shelf where food was kept. On the landing outside there were brown earthenware sink, common to several rooms. He remembered his mother's statuesque body bending over the gas ring to stir at something in the saucepan. Above all, he remembered his continuous hunger and the fierce sordid battles at mealtimes. He would ask his mother naggingly over and over why was there not more food. He would shout and storm at her. He even remembered the tones of his voice, which was beginning to break prematurely and sometimes boomed in a peculiar way. And he would attempt a sniveling note of pathos in his efforts to get more than his share. His mother was quite ready to give him more than his share. She took it for granted that he, the boy, should have the biggest portion. But, however, she gave him, invariably, she gave him, he invariably demanded more. At every meal, she would beseech him not to be selfish, and also to remember that his little sister was sick and also needed food. But it was no use. He would cry out with rage when she stopped ladling. He would try to wrench the saucepan and spoon out of her hands. He would grab bits from his sister's plate. He knew that he was starving the other two, but he could not help it. He even felt that he had a right to do it. The clamorous hunger in his belly seemed to justify him. Between meals, his mother did not stand guard. He was constantly pilfering the wretched store of food on the shelf. One day, a chocolate ration was issued. There had not been such issue for weeks, months past. He remembered quite clearly taking the little morsel of chocolate. It was a two-ounce slab. They still talked about ounces in those days. Between the three of them, it was obvious it ought to be divided into three equal parts. Suddenly, as though he were listening to somebody else, Winston heard himself demanding in a loud, booming voice that he should be given the whole piece. His mother told him not to be greedy. There was a long, nagging argument that went around and round with shouts and whines and tears and Remonstrations and bargainings, his little sister clinging to her mother with both hands, exactly like a baby monkey, sat looking over her shoulder at the large, looking at him with large mournful eyes. In the end, his mother broke off three quarters of the chocolate and gave it to Winston, giving the other quarter to his sister. The little girl took a hold of it and looked at it dully, perhaps not knowing what it was. Winston stood watching her for a moment, and with a sudden, swift spring, he had snatched the piece of chocolate out of his sister's hand and was fleeing for the door. Winston! Winston! his mother called after him. Come back! Give your sister back her chocolate! He stopped, but he did not come back. His mother's anxious eyes were fixed on his face. Even now she was thinking about one thing, and he did not know what it was, that it was on the point of happening. His sister, conscious of having been robbed of something, had set up a feeble wail. His mother drew her arm around the child and pressed its face against her breast. Something in that gesture told him that his sister was dying. He turned, fled down the stairs with the chocolate growing sticky in his hands. He never saw his mother again. After he devoured the chocolate, he felt something somewhat ashamed of himself and hung about in the street for several hours until hunger drove him home. When he came back, his mother had disappeared. This was already become normal at that time. "'Nothing was gone from the room except his mother and his sisters. "'They had not taken any clothes, not even his mother's overcoat. "'To this day he did not know with any certainty that his mother was alive or dead. "'It was perfectly possible she had merely been sent to a forced labor camp. "'As for his sister, she might have been removed, like Winston himself.' To one of the colonies for homeless children, reclamation centers they were called, which had grown up as a result of the Civil War, or she might have been sent to the labor camp along with his mother, or simply left somewhere or other to die. The dream was still vivid in his mind, especially the enveloping, protect- protecting gesture of his arm, in which the whole meaning seemed to be constrained. His mind went back to another dream of two months ago, exactly as his mother had sat on the dingy white quilted bed with the child clinging to her so she sat in the sunken ship far underneath him and drowning deeper every minute, but he was still looking up at him through the darkening water who told Julia the story of his mother's disappearance. Without opening her eyes, she rolled over and settled herself into a more comfortable position. I expect you were a beastly little swine in those days, she said instinctively. All children are swine. Yes, but the real point of this story, from her breathing, it was evident she was going off to sleep again. He would have to he would like to continue talking about his mother. He did not suppose from what he could remember of her that she had been an unusual woman, still less intelligent one, and yet possessed the kind of ability a kind of purity that simply because the standards that she had been obeyed were private ones. Her feelings were her own, and they could not be altered from the outside. It would not have occurred to her that the action is, which is ineffectual therefore becomes meaningless. If you loved someone, if you loved him, then you would have nothing else to give. Still you gave him love. The last of the chocolate was gone. His mother had collapsed the child in her arms. It was no use. It changed nothing. It did not produce more chocolate. It did not avert the child's death or her own. It seemed natural to her to do it. The refugee ma—a woman in the boat had also covered the little boy with her arms, which there was no more use against the bullets than a sheet of paper the terrible thing that the party had done was to persuade you that mere impulses, mere feelings, were of no account, while at the same time robbing you of all power over the material world. When, when once you felt the grip of the party, what you felt, what you did not feel, or what you did or refrained from doing, made literally no difference whatever happened to you vanished and neither you nor your actions were ever heard of again you were lifted clean out of the stream of history and yet the people of only two generations ago this would not have seemed all important because they were not attempting to alter history they were governed by private loyalties which they did not question what mattered were individual relationships and a completely helpless gesture an embrace a tear a word spoken to a dying man could still have value in itself the proles it suddenly occurred to him had remained in this condition they were not loyal to a party or a country or an idea they were loyal to one another For the first time in his life, he did not despise the proles or think of them as merely an inert force for which one day spring to life and regenerate the world. The proles had stayed human. They had not been hardened inside. They had held on to the primitive emotions which he himself had to relearn with conscious effort. And thinking this, he remembered, without apparent revelance, how a few weeks ago he had seen a severed hand lying on the pavement and had kicked it into the gutter as though it had been cabbage stalk. The pearls are human beings, he said aloud. We are not human. Why not? said Julia, who had woken up again. "'He thought for a little while. "'Has it ever occurred to you,' he said, "'that the best thing for us would be simply to walk out of here "'before it's too late and never see each other again?' "'Yes, dear, it's occurred to me several times, "'but I'm not going to do it all the same.' "'We've been lucky,' he said, "'but it can't last much longer. "'You're young.' You look normal and innocent. If you stay clear of people like me, you might stay alive for another 50 years. No, I've thought all about it. What you do, I'm going to do. And don't be so downhearted. I'm rather good at staying alive. We may be together another six months, a year. There's no knowing. At the end, we're certain to be apart. Do you realize how utterly alone we shall be? Once they get a hold of us, there will be nothing, literally nothing, that either of us can do for the other. If I confess, they'll shoot you, and if I refuse to confess, they'll shoot you just the same. Nothing I can do or say or stop myself from saying Will put off your death for as much as five minutes, neither of us will not even know whether the other is dead or alive. We shall be utterly without power of any kind. The one thing that matters is that we cannot betray another, although even that can't make the slightest difference. If you mean confessing, she said. We shall do that. Right enough. Everyone always confesses. You can't help it. They torture you. I don't mean confessing. Confession is not betrayal. What you say or do doesn't matter. Only feelings matter. If they make me stop loving you, that, that would be the real betrayal. She thought it over. They can't do that, she said finally. It's the one thing they can't do. They can make you say anything. Anything. But they can't make you believe it. They can't get inside of you. No, he said, a little more hopefully. No, that's quite true. They can't get inside of you if you can feel that staying human is worthwhile, even when it can't have any result whatsoever, you've beaten them. He thought of the telescreen with its never-sleeping ear that could spy upon you night and day, but if you kept your head where you could still outwit them all of the cleverness that they had never mastered, the secret of finding out what another human being was thinking. Perhaps it was less true when you were actually in their hands. One does not know what happened inside the ministry of love, but it was possible to guess. Tortures, drugs, delicate instruments that registered your nervous reactions, gradual wearing down by sleeplessness and solitude and persistent questioning, Facts, at any rate, could not be hidden. They could be tracked down by inquiry. They could be squeezed out of you by torture. But if the object was not to stay alive, but to stay human, what difference did it ultimately make? They could not alter your feelings. For that matter, you could not alter them yourself, even if you wanted to. They could lay bare in the utmost detail everything that you had ever done or said or thought, but in the inner heart, whose workings were mysterious even to yourself, remained impregnable. Book Two, Chapter Eight they had done it. They had done it at last. The room they were standing in was long-shaped and softly lit. The telescreen was dimmed to a low murmur. The richness of the blue, car- blue dark blue carpet of the dark blue carpet gave one the impression of treading on velvet at the far end of the room. O'Brien was sitting at the table. Under a green shaded lamp, with a mass of papers on either side of him, he had not bothered to look up when the servant showed Julie and Winston in. Winston's heart was thumping so hard that he doubted. Whatever, whenever he, th- whenever he would be able to speak. They had done it, they had done it at last was all that he could think he had been it had been a ra a rash act to come here at all, and this sheer folly to arrive together, though it was true that they had come by different routes and only met on O'Brien's doorstep, but merely to walk into such a place needed effort of nerve. It was only on rare occasions that one saw inside the dwelling-places of the inner party, or even penetrated into the quarter of the town where they lived. The whole atmosphere of a huge block of flats, the richness, the spaciousness of everything, unfamiliar smells of good food and good tobacco, the silent, and incredibly rapid lifts sliding up and down, the white-jacketed servants hurrying to and fro. Everything was intimidating. Although he had good pretext for coming here, he was haunted at every step by the fear of the black uniformed guard would suddenly appear from around the corner, his, demand his papers, and order him to get out. O'Brien's servant, however, had admitted the two of them without demure he was a small, dark-haired man, in a white jacket, with a diamond-shaped, completely expressionless face that might have been that of a Japanese. The passage down which they had led them was softly carpeted, with clean, papered walls and white wainscoting, all exquisitely clean. That was too intimidating. Winston could not remember, ever— having to have seen a passageway whose walls were not grimy from the contact of human bodies. O'Brien had slipped a piece of paper between his fingers and seemed to be studying it intently. His heavy face, bent down so that one could see the line of the nose, looked both formidable and intelligent. For perhaps twenty seconds, he sat without stirring, and then he pulled the speak right towards him, and rapped out of the message a hybrid jargon of the ministries. Items 1, 5, 7 Approved, full wise, stop Suggestion, contained, item 6 Double plus, ridiculous, verging vir- crime think, cancel, stop Unproceed, "'unproceed construction-wise, em plus full estimates, "'machinery overhead, stop, and message.' "'He rose deliberately from his chair, "'came towards them, across the soundless, atm- soundless carpet. "'A little of the official atmosphere "'seemed to have fallen away from him "'with the new-speak words.' But his expression was grimmer than usual, as though he were not pleased being disturbed. The terror that Winston had already felt was, was suddenly shot through by a streak of ordinary embarrassment. It seems he had quite possibly that he had made a very stupid mistake. "'For what evidence did he have in reality "'that O'Brien was of any c- kind of political conspirator? "'Nothing but a flash of eyes "'and a single equivocal rem- remark. "'Beyond that, his own secret imaginings, "'founded on a dream, "'he could not even fall back on the pretense "'that he had come to borrow the dictionary, "'because in that case, Julia's presence was impossible to explain.' As O'Brien passed the telescreen, a thought seemed to strike him. He stopped, turned aside, pressed a switch on the wall. There was a sharp snap. The voice had stopped. Julia uttered a tiny sound, sort of a squeak of surprise. Even in the midst of his panic, Winston was too much taken aback to be a to be able to hold his tongue. You can turn it off, he said. Yes, said O'Brien. We can turn it off. We have that privilege. He was opposite them now. His solid form towered over the pair of them, and the expression on his face was still indecipherable. He was waiting somewhat sternly, for Winston to speak. But what about? Even now, it was quite conceivable that he was simply a busy man, wondering irritably why he had been interrupted. Nobody spoke. After the stopping of the telescreen, the room seemed deadly silent. The seconds marched past, enormous, With difficulty, Winston continued to keep his eyes fixed on O'Brien's, and then suddenly the grim face broke down into what have been the beginnings of a smile. With his characteristic gesture, O'Brien resettled his spectacles on his nose. Shall I say it will you, he said. I will say it said Winston promptly. That thing is really turned off? Yes, everything is turned off. We are alone. We had come here because... He paused, realizing for the first time the vagueness of his own motives, since he did not know what kind of help he expected from O'Brien. It was not easy to say why he had come here. He went on, conscious of what he must be saying, must but sound both feeble and pretentious. We believe that there is some kind of conspiracy, a sort of secret organization working against the party, and that you are involved in it. We want to join it and work for it. We are enemies of the party. We disbelieve the principles of Insoc. "'We are thought criminals. We are also adulterers. "'I tell you this because we want to put ourselves at your mercy. "'If you want to incriminate ourselves in such any other way, we are ready.' "'He stopped and glanced over his shoulder, "'with the feeling that the door had been opened. "'Sure enough, the little yellow-faced servant had come in without knocking.' Winston saw that he was carrying a tray with a decanter and glasses. Martin is one of us, said O'Brien, impassively. Bring the drinks over here, Martin. Put them on the round table. Have we enough chairs? Then you may sit down and talk in comfort. Bring a chair for yourself, Martin. This is business. You can stop being a servant. For the next ten minutes, the little man sat down quite at ease, and still, with a servant-like air, the air of a valet enjoying privilege. Winston guarded him out of the corner of his eyes. It struck him that the man's whole life was playing a part, that he felt and that he felt it to be dangerous to drop his assumed personality even for a moment. O'Brien took the decanter by the neck, filled up the glasses with, lar- uh, with red, dark red liquid. It aroused Winston in the dim memories he had seen long ago on a wall or hoarding, a vast bottle composed of electric lights which seemed to move up and down and pour its contents into a glass. Seen from the top, The stuff looked almost black, but in the decanter it gleamed ruby. It had a sweet, sour smell. He saw Julia pick up her glass and sniff at it with frank curiosity. "'It is called wine,' said O'Brien, with a faint smile. "'You will read about it in books, no doubt. Not much of it gets to the outer party, I'm afraid.' "'His eyes grew solemn again, and he raised his glass. "'I think it is fitting that we should begin by drinking to our health, "'to our leader, to Emmanuel Goldstein. "'Winston took his glass with a certain eagerness. "'Wine was a thing he had read and dreamt about, "'like the glass paperweight or Mr. Charrington's half-remembered lyrics.' belonged to the vanished, romantic past, the golden time when he liked to call it in his secret thoughts. For some reason, he had always thought of wine as being intensely sweet-taste, like that of blackberry jam, and an immediate intoxicating effect. Actually, when he came to swallow it, the stuff was distinctly disappointing. The truth was that after years of gin he could barely taste it. He set the empty glass down. Then there is such a person as Goldstein, he said. Yes, there is such a person, and he is alive. Where, I do not know. And the conspiracy, the organization, it is real? It is not simply a belief, an invention of the thought police. No, it is real, brotherhood we call it. You will never learn much about it, much more about the brotherhood than it exists, and that you belong to it. I will come, I will come back to that presently. He looked at his wristwatch. It is unwise for even members of the inner party. "'to turn off the telescreen for more than half an hour. "'You ought not to have come here together, "'and you will have to leave separately. "'You, comrade,' he bowed his head to Julia, "'will leave first. "'We will have about twenty minutes at our disposal. "'You will understand that I must start by asking you certain questions, "'in general terms.' What are you prepared to do? Anything we're capable of, said Winston, Brian turned to himself with a little in his little uh, a little in his chair. He was facing Winston, he almost ignored Julia seemed to take it for granted that Winston could speak for her for at the moment the lids flitted down over his eyes. And he began asking his questions in a low, expressionless voice, as though they were routine, a sort of catechism, most of those which were already which most whose much, most of those whose answers were known to him already, are you prepared to give your lives? Yes. Are you prepared to commit murder? Yes. Are you to commit acts of sabotage which may cause the death of hundreds of innocent people? Yes. To betray your country to foreign powers? Yes. Are you prepared to cheat, to forge, to blackmail, to corrupt the minds of children, to distribute habit-forming drugs, to encourage prostitution, to disseminate venereal diseases, to do anything which is likely to cause demoralization and weaken the party. Yes. If, for example, it would somehow serve our interests to throw sulfuric acid in a child's face, are you prepared to do that? Yes. Are you prepared to lose your identity and live out the rest of your life as a waiter or a dock worker? Yes. Are you prepared to commit suicide if and when we order you to do so? Yes. Are you prepared, the two of you, to separate and never see each other again? No. "'Broken Julia.' "'It had appeared to Winston "'that for a long time passed "'before he had answered. "'For the moment he seemed "'to have been deprived of the power of speech. "'His tongue worked soundlessly, "'forming open syllables, "'the first of one word, "'and then of another, "'and over and over again, "'until he had said it. "'He did not know which word "'he was going to say.' "'No,' he said finally. "'You did well to tell me,' said O'Brien. "'It is necessary for us to know everything.' "'He turned towards Julia and added to a, with a voice "'that somewhat had more expression in it. "'Do you understand that even if he survives, "'it may be as a different person?' We may be obliged to give him a new identity, face, his movements, the shape of his hands, the color of his hair, even his voice would be different, and you yourself might become a different person. Our surgeons can alter people beyond recognition. Sometimes it is necessary, sometimes, sometimes we even amputate a limb. Winston could not help but snatching another sidelong face at Martin's Mongolian face. There were no scars that he could see. Julia had turned a shade paler so that her freckles were showing, but she faced O'Brien boldly. She murmured something that seemed to be assent. Good then it is settled. There is a silver box of cigarettes on the table. With a rather absent-minded air, O'Brien pushed it towards the others, looked at look, took one himself, then stood up and began to pace to and fro, as though he could think better than standing. They were very good cigarettes, thick and well-packed. An unfamiliar silkiness in the paper, O'Brien looked at his w- wristwatch again. You had better go back to your pantry, Martin he said. I shall switch on the quarter I shall switch it on in a quarter of an hour. Take a good look at these comrades' faces before you go. You will not be seeing them again. I may not exactly as they had done at the front door. The little man's dark eyes flickered over their faces. There was not a trace of friendliness in his manner. He was memorizing their appearance, but felt no interest in them, or appeared to feel none. It occurred to Winston that his synthetic face was perhaps incapable of changing its ex- ex- expression. Without speaking or giving any kind of salutation, Martin went out, closing the door silently behind him. O'Brien sat, was strolling up and down, one hand in his pocket of his black overalls and the other holding his cigarette. You understand, he said, that you will be fighting in the dark. You will always be fighting in the dark you will receive orders and you will obey them without knowing why later i shall send you a book from which you will learn the true nature of the society we live in and the strategy by which we shall destroy it when you read the book you will be full members of the brotherhood but between the general aims we are fighting for, and the intermediate tasks of the moment, you will never know anything. I will tell you that the Brotherhood exists, but I cannot tell you the numbers in the hundreds or ten million. From your own personal knowledge, you will not be able to say that in its numbers, even as many as a dozen. You will have three or four contacts who will be renewed from time to time as they disappear. As this is your first contact, it will be preserved. When you receive orders, they will come from me. And we will find it necessary to communicate with you. It will be through Martin. When you are finally caught, you will confess that is unavoidable, but you will have very little to confess other than your own actions. You will not be able to betray more than a handful of unimportant people. Perhaps you will not even betray me by the time I may be dead, or I shall become a different person with a different face. He continued to move to and fro over the sark. A soft carpet. In spite of the bulkiness of his body, there was a remarkable grace in his movements. It had come out even in the gesture in which he thrust a hand into its pocket and manipulated a cigarette. Even more than of strength, he gave the impression of confidence, of an understanding tinged by irony, However much in earnest he might be, he had nothing but the single-mindedness that belongs to a fanatic. When he spoke of murder, suicide, venereal diseases, amputated limbs, and altered faces, there was a faint air of persiflage. This is unavoidable, his voice seemed to say. This is what we have got to do unflinchingly, but this is not what we shall be doing when Life is worth living again. A wave of admiration, almost worship, flowed from Winston towards O'Brien. For the moment, he had forgotten the shadowy figure of Goldstein. When he looked at the O'Brien's powerful soldiers, sol- shoulders and his blunt-featured face, so ugly yet so civilized, it was impossible to believe that he could be defeated. There was no stratagem that he could not equal to, no danger that he could not foresee. Even Julia seemed to be impressed. She had let her cigarette go out and was listening intently. O'Brien went on. You will have heard rumors of the existence of the Brotherhood. No doubt you have formed your own picture of it. You have imagined probably a huge underworld of conspirators meeting meeting secretly in cellars scribbling messages on walls recognizing one another by code words or special movements of the hand nothing of this exists the members of the brotherhood have no way of recognizing one another and it is impossible for one for any one member to be aware of the identity of more than a very few others. Goldstein himself, if he fell into the hands of the thought police, could not give them a complete list of members, and any information that would lead to a complete list. No such list exists. The Brotherhood cannot be wiped out, because it is not an organization in the ordinary sense nothing holds it together except the idea which is indestructible you will have any you will never have anything to disdain you except the idea you will get no comradeship no encouragement when you finally are caught you will get no help we never help our members at the most when it is absolutely necessary that someone should be silenced We occasionally smuggle a razor blade into the prisoner's cell. You will have to get used to living without results and without hope. You will work for a while, you will be caught, you will confess, and then you will die. Those are the only results you will ever see. There is no other possibility or any perceivable change that will happen within our own life's lifetime we are the dead our only true life is in the future we shall take part in it as a handful of dust and splinters of bone but how far away that the future may be there is no knowing it may be a thousand years at the present nothing is possible except to extend the area of sanity little by little. We cannot act collectively. We can only spread our knowledge outwards, from individual to individual, generation after generation. In the face of the thought police, there is no other way. He halted, and for the third time looked at his his wristwatch. It's almost time for you to leave, comrade, he said to Julia. Wait. The decanter is still half full. He raised his glass and he filled the glasses and raised his own by the stem. What shall it be this time? he said with a faint suggestion of irony, to the confusion of the thought, police, to the death of Big Brother, to humanity, to the future, to the past, said Winston. The past is more important, agreed O'Brien gravely. They emptied their glasses, and a moment later Julia stood up to go. O'Brien took a small box from the top of the cabinet and handed her a flat white tablet that he told her to press on her tongue. It was important, she said, not to go out smelling of wine. The lift attendants were very observant. As soon as the door had shut behind her, he appeared to forget her existence. He took another pace or two up and down, then stopped. There are details to be settled, he said. I assume you have a hiding place of some kind? Winston explained the room over Mr. Charrington's shop. That'll do for the moment. Later we will arrange something else for you. It'll be important to change one's hiding place frequently. Meanwhile, I shall send you a copy of the book. Even O'Brien, Winston noticed, seemed to pronounce the words as though they were in italics. Goldstein's book you understand as soon as possible. It may be some days before I can get a hold of one. There are not many in existence, as you imagine. The thump police hunts them down and destroys them almost as fast as we can produce them. It makes very little difference. The book is indestructible. If the last copy were gone, we would just reproduce it almost word for word. Do you have a briefcase you carry to work with you? He added. As a rule, yes. What is it? Black. Very shabby. Two straps. Black. Two straps. Very shabby. Good. One day in the fairly near future, I cannot give you a date, one of the messages among your morning papers will contain a misprinted word, and you will have to ask for a repeat. On the following day you will go to work without your briefcase. At some time during the day in the street, a man will touch you on the arm and say, I think you've dropped your briefcase and the one he gives you will contain a copy of Goldstein's books you will return it within 14 days there was silence at the moment at the moment there were a couple of minutes before you need to go said O'Brien we shall meet again if we meet again Winston looked up at him and the place where there is no darkness he said hesitantly o'brien nodded without the appearance of surprise in the place where there is no darkness he said as though recognizing the allusion. El- in the meantime is there anything you wish to say before you leave any message any question Winston thought there did not seem to be any further question that he wanted to ask still less did he feel any impulse to utter high-sounding generalities instead of anything directly connected with o'brien or the brotherhood there came into mind a sort of composite picture of his dark bedroom where his mother had spent her last days, and the little room over Mr. Charrington's shop, and the glass paperweight, and the steel engraving on the rosewood frame. Almost randomly he said, Did you ever happen to hear an old rhyme that begins, and lemons say the bells of St. Clemens again o'brien nodded with a sort of grave courtesy he completed the stanza orange and lemons says the bell of saint clemens you owe me three farlings says the bells of saint martins when will you pay me the bells of old bailey when i grow rich said the bells of shoreditch you knew the last line said winston "Yes." I knew the last line. And now I must I am afraid it is time for you to go. But wait. I better you better let me give you one of those tablets. Winston stood up, held out his hand. His powerful grip crushed the bones of Winston's palm. At the door he looked back, but O'Brien had already been in the process of putting him out of his mind. He was waiting on the hand on it with his hand on the switch that controlled the telescreen beyond him. Winston could see the writing table with its green shaded lamp and the speakright and the wire basket dip, deep laden with papers. The incident was closed within thirty seconds. It occurred to him O'Brien would be back at. Un, at It has interrupted an important work on behalf of the party. Alright, so that's the end of the reading for tonight. Uh, I hope everyone out there has a great day. And just a reminder... I will be starting that Patreon page. I will give you guys a launch date. So, pass it on.